how do you in in terms of just like operating restaurant this is like aside from covid how do you balance that um desire to serve the best quality ramen with the realities of cost and profit margins and things like that yeah how do you what what things do you feel like just personally like okay we can do this to stretch costs like you kind of mentioned the niban you're doing niban the paitans Mm -hmm. and things like or like how do you balance that you know like what do you what are you doing to balance those two things because it sounds like you you have a strong desire to serve really kotawari you know Mm -hmm. bulls right but you still have to run a business yeah yeah. I don't know. It's, I would say it's my uh, my own slave labor. <laughs> I'm here all day, every day. So maybe that's helping with the cost. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a passion project. You know, it's it's really just blood, sweat, and tears that go into this. You know, uh, we're here every day, you know, holding it down. I think that's one of the main things. You got to have passionate chefs that really love what they love what they're doing i think that's one of the core things you know it goes beyond profit margins and things like that for sure Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way Ramen Podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Alex Ryutaro Aramaki, who runs a shop in Vancouver, British Columbia called Gyopara. Alex is actually a third-generation ramen chef, with his grandfather operating a ramen shop in post-war Japan in the 1950s. After he helped open up a few ramen franchises in the BC area, namely Jinya and Dambo, Alex brought back Gyopara, which was his dad's restaurant from the 90s, with the intent of making food again from scratch. In this episode, we get into Alex's family history with ramen, his work with opening up franchises and then eventually opening up his own shop, and also some of his tips to make better ramen at home. So without further ado, here's Alex Uritaro Aramaki on the Way of Ramen podcast. Enjoy. So thanks for coming on. I really do appreciate it. And it's kind of last minute and stuff, but and I know you're busy. You got your own restaurant and stuff to take care of. So it's a, it's a treat for me. Um, <laughs> So we could start off by just give us a short introduction on who you are, and then we'll kind of get into your whole family history after that, but just like really quickly, like who you are, where you're at, you know, your shop. Sure. Um, so my name is Alexander Ryutaro Aramaki. I'm, uh, I was born in Canada, but I'm, uh, I'm Japanese, and I'm uh, a third-generation ramen chef, and um, just continuing on, continuing on the uh, family tradition here. And uh, I really love what I do. I just make ramen all day. And, uh, you know, that's what I've been doing for professionally over 10 years, 12 years now, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I love your community. I love the content. So it's good to be here. Awesome, man. Yeah, so I, we can get into that right away. You have, like, a really interesting story, which is why I kind of wanted to get you on the show. It's um, You're, like, the first multi-generational guest on the show. Like, a lot of us... <laughs> you know, we kind of pick it up. I'm really new to yeah. it still. Like I pick it up a couple of years ago, but your family has been in ramen for how, how long was it? 50 years, 60 years, you know, yeah, like 70 years, even yeah. 70 years, maybe. Could, could you tell us a little bit about your family's story? in ramen? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. I took a few notes down here. Um, but yeah, our ramen history goes back at least to the fifties. Um, 1950s, right? Like that's right. That's, that's crazy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I can get into a little bit of the details here, but essentially my grandfather started his ramen career in 1950, uh, just, you know, uh, post-war, everyone was hungry and he was in the yatai scene and, uh, you know, it's cooking food for the people. 
And, um, but before that, his cousin and his uncle um, used to have a ramen, ramen, um, uh, ramen factory, essentially. And, um, and that's how he got his, you know, uh, got into the game. And um, yeah, it's, it goes back a long no, you can tell the whole story. I mean, like it's it's pretty interesting because, like, I kind of read a little bit about it. Right, he had like a, a ramen shop first, okay. right, yep. and then it transitioned so, into like this big kind of mm-hmm. like I don't know if, I don't know exactly what it was like a CPG or like a manufacturer, like some kind of like mass, <laughs> some kind of manufacturing yeah. company, right? Like it transformed right. from that into that. So can we talk about yeah. that? Like what the original so, shop um, was called? Um, the original shop was called Yoyoken, and that was actually 1954. But he also had the his own noodle factory, like a small one, in 1952. So, and then he used his own noodles for his own uh, restaurant. And then um, that went really well. He was one of the biggest. He was kind of like setting the wave in Tokyo. And um, by 1966, he established um, Tsukimen Ramen, which is um, which was based in Tsukishima. So it was it was abbreviated to Tsukimen. Mm. And um, Tsukimen was really successful. He was um, one of Japan's biggest entrepreneurs at the time. And um, yeah, it was, Tsukimen was up there with the, uh, the other big corporations that still exist today, like uh, Nishin, mm-hmm. the cup noodle guys. And um, but yeah, the, the company that he established, um, which, which my dad was also a part of when he was young, they had like unlimited resources essentially when it came to the noodle production and they really focused their efforts and they were trend setting. They were only, they were pretty much the first to have atmospheric control in the uh, noodle factory where they have uh, air shower, they wear suits and then they shower them with air, you know, nice and clean. And then inside the actual facility, it's all atmospheric control because you know, noodles, you know, they're very sensitive products. Uh, the moisture content in the atmosphere alone can change the uh, percentages of, of everything. So mm-hmm. they're really into that and they're really uh, into their craft. And then he went on to like sell that business or something? Like what? Right. What happened? Oh, yeah. So that's kind of a tragic event. But essentially the unions kind of, uh, the unions kind of revolted against the company because what happened is the company got so big, it had three different locations. And the company was looking to kind of merge it into one new location, you know, just to mm-hmm. save costs. Cause you can't, you can't move all that product around three locations. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, the company was looking to kind of um, centralize, but there was, um, there were some in union issues and essentially they ran the stories that like, that essentially um, that was not good. Mm-hmm. Like, to the unions they don't want to you know move and if you if they move the unions would lose their job and it was kind of dramatic but essentially see. yeah they they merged with nishin nishin noodle company because nishin at the time only did dried dried products dry noodles and tsukimen had uh frozen frozen raw noodles and um like real noodles frozen dumplings and uh they were really fascinated and then they essentially merged and then nishin started doing multiple uh product lines and they still continue the Tsukimen Ramen Ya brand to this day. Oh, wow. So, pretty cool. So you can still buy that in Japan and stuff? Yep. Wow. Yeah. 
That's my name still lives on. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did you how did you guys end up in Vancouver? Like how did how does that happen? <laughs> so my dad is kind of like a dreamer, and I guess he went to UVic back in the day, back in the seventies, mm -hmm. and you know he was he was uh. So, he he like so he's like studying abroad, like a Japanese guy coming to yeah, Canada yeah. to study abroad, want to learn English and stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> exactly. And he was really, he was like a hippie, you know, he's really enjoying life. And then uh, my grandfather forced him back to Japan to continue on the work, you know. And then, um, and then as, as Ski Man got merged and uh, he decided he wanted to, you know, continue on his life freely in uh in Canada where it's, you know, nice and beautiful, mm -hmm. lots of nature. And, uh, he brought with him one of those industrial, uh, ski man noodle machines to, uh, to Canada. And he, uh, made the Canadian uh, Canada noodle company in 1987. It's like so. a almost identical story to sun noodle here in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It's like a yeah. guy, I mean, not like the whole history of family in the business, but he came to Hawaii with like one noodle machine and it's like, and I'm make it. yeah, yeah, really yeah. similar. What kind of, um, by the way, just before I move on, like what kind of ramen was your grandpa serving? Was it like, cause it was like 50. Uh, Tokyo, yeah, uh, Tokyo Shoyu, just like a, a generic uh, old school. Cause before in the fifties, you know, there was, a, there was only chukasoba. That's only, right, yeah. Like, ramen. But um, yeah, I can rant about more about ramen history in general. I actually have a few notes I wanted to discuss. About <laughs> yeah, yeah I find it like, ramen. it's really interesting because you know, like, like I'm sure like a lot of people who listen to this podcast know a little bit about like how ramen yeah. actually is a relatively new food and it right. really developed in that time period where your grandpa right. was on the boots on the ground, like making right. ramen and selling ramen and making noodles. So yeah, like if you want to share about that kind of stuff, that's really cool. Cause you guys, yeah. your family has that firsthand experience at look at what was happening at the time. Like right. they read books and watch mm -hmm. videos of like old footage of black and white photos. It's like, <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. These people look like they're, like it looks like it looks like in a post-war war country serving mm -hmm. noodles out of a out of a little cart, but <laughs> you got yeah more insight yeah. into that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, for sure. The noodle boom, the ramen boom, essentially uh, in the fifties, is very fascinating. But I'm I also really enjoy the history before that. You know, kind of like the Chinese influence mm. and the trade between Japan and China. So I was um I was looking into that and um. You know, Nagasaki in, in Japan has the world's oldest Chinatown, I believe, outside of China, because it was a trade port with China that was open, you know, since the 1500s. So. And Kyushu, right? Like that, that like Kyushu is kind of weird. Like <laughs> even when they shut everything down, like people could still trade mm -hmm. there for some reason. Like, so even like uh, the, the Dutch and the Portuguese were still trading. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. My theory is that yeah, noodles, noodles with kansu, you know, ramen, could have been like really old uh, in Japan, and we just didn't, we just never knew. And um, another interesting fact about you know kansu and you know the iconic ramen noodles is that um, I believe it's the Yunnan province in China. They had spring water that was highly that had high potassium content, and then they used that to make their noodles and they, they liked it. I think that's, that's how country based noodles were born essentially. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. It's like just by accident pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're trying to make noodles in that one pond or spring that they're right. taking out of. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
Some crazy, st- crazy yeah. stuff, man. Yeah, and um, yeah, like Nagasaki champong is really ancient, like mm. really, really old. I believe it was like a staff meal. Essentially, they just threw everything in the pot <laughs> and then they served it with noodles, you know. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, that's pretty much. I, I just wanted to discuss a little bit about history there before you know the boom. It's yeah, pretty cool if you think about it. Yeah, because I mean, like, when a lot of some of the Japanese chefs in Japan that I had on, they're like, when you always ask them, like, oh, what do you think about ramen outside of Japan? And they're like, it's a Chinese food in Japan. So it's like, you can't really, Japanese people can't tell people that's not ramen when ramen <laughs> itself came from China, right? So it's like, For sure. who are they to say? Yeah, that's, what, that's what these people in Japan have told me anyway. So yeah, it's kind of totally. always interesting to hear that because in, in the West, at least in America, people are like, oh, ramen is Japanese food, but. Right, Japanese people, you get it at like a, like a, what is that called? Like a Chinese restaurant. That's like where you get ramen and stuff a lot of times. So, mm-hmm. really cool, man. So that was kind of interesting. I was kind of wondering, like, why you guys ended up in Canada when you guys had like a, <laughs> you know, all that going yeah. on in Japan with your family. So you're born in Canada and stuff, and then I am. How did, yes. How did you learn how to make ramen? Was it like through your dad, or, or did, yes, you to, yeah. did you go to school, or you know, like they have those. No, there's no ramen. <laughs> there's like in today, okay. today's in today's day and age, like Rajuku Tokyo yeah. Ramen Academy, and then like I think Mencho has yeah. one now. Like they're popping up now, but yeah. I don't know when you learned if they had anything like that back in the day. That's great. Years ago, yeah. I wish. No, I was. Um, so I loved cooking even at a young age, and um, I was already cooking as soon as I graduated high school. So I'm 30 now, but I was cooking since uh, 17. You know, in the kitchen really learning everything online uh, here, the kind of Western kitchen style and learning how to, you know, drop fries, cook burgers, you know, um, cook steaks, learned everything online. And then after that, I went on to help a little restaurant called Domburiya. And there we had ramen, very simple ramen, you know, <laughs> and uh, ramen and rice bowls. It was kind of like a convenient, very fast paced restaurant. So it was a really good experience for me to just get in there, get in the kitchen and start tossing some noodles. Mm. So yeah, that was like 2000, 2008. And then after that, I went ahead and uh, cooked at a izakaya, a very famous one here in Vancouver. Uh, shout out to Hapa Izakaya. <laughs> and um, yeah, I spent a lot of time there working on my staff meal craft, you know, cooking noodles <laughs> for, the, for the staff. And uh, it was, that was a lot of fun, actually. And, um, and uh, 2010, 2011. So by 2011, I actually got in touch again with my old boss from Dombria. And uh, he told me about this new project, Genia, coming to Vancouver. And Oh, uh, yeah. That's like famous, like kind of like, mm-hmm. like a franchise or what is it? Like yes. uh, you have so many locations everywhere. Yes. yes. So Virginia is being very successful right now, I think. And, uh, you know, it's a very, very nice brand now. Uh, but at the time, we only had a few locations in Hollywood and uh, LA, just uh, I think two or three. And the franchise owner was actually a izakaya company, and they didn't have too much ramen experience, but they knew ramen was a, a good concept to run with. And uh, through their success, they decided to open a location here in Vancouver. And uh, and then I was headhunted essentially by my old boss. <laughs> he brought me in and. Uh, before I knew it, I was painting, you know, painting the kitchen white with uh, my kitchen pants and everything, getting ready. And uh, 
we opened that bad boy up. It was really fun. It was a really good experience. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's great. Did your did your dad have any aspirations of you to continue in ramen, or was it kind of just like you do whatever you want and you just kind of found your way back to it? Like, what was what was that <laughs> was like? Because I yeah. I know a lot of times like people who are in the industry and they're like, oh, don't do this. It's so hard. Like, or it's either right. one or two ways, right? Like, either yeah, they're like, you hard. work for me and you're gonna work for me till you're fifty. Then when mm-hmm. I die, you take over. Or it's like, <laughs> don't don't ever do what I'm doing, right? It's usually one. Right. Yeah. Well, my dad has a very fascinating uh, history, work work history. So he's been part of the industry for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I can rant about him all day. So after he brought the noodle company noodle machine here to Vancouver, um, he had to sell the machine to a different company and stuff, and uh, he opened. He helped open a really famous sushi restaurant. It was uh, Vancouver's like, or North America's all-star uh, sushi restaurant with like you know AAA chefs and everything, like super high-quality products. But Vancouver was not ready for that, you know, and oh, yeah. that didn't work out that project. But he was only a manager, and then he moved on to open a uh, his own sushi restaurant called Octopus Garden, and he really loved that, and uh, he loved the Beatles, so he named it Octopus Garden. <laughs> And um, so that was so. Now that he stepped away from that project, but that's still Vancouver's, you know, uh, one top five sushi restaurant, super gourmet. Yeah, that was really awesome. good, really fun for him. And then uh, in '93, we opened the original Gyoza Paradise. So I was only three at the time, and uh, that's where our name comes from. Our restaurant's mm-hmm. called Gyopara, and um, it's the abbreviation of Gyoza Paradise. And um, yeah, I I've always dreamed to uh, kind of bring back from the ashes, you know, the original Gyoza Paradise. Essentially, we were located in the direct middle of uh, Vancouver city center. And um, the whole block got demolished for new, new buildings. And uh, the, our restaurant had a limited timeline, essentially. Like, we didn't know when it was going to happen, but yeah, they, they demolished the whole block down. So I see. Yeah, they didn't, yeah, didn't last I- long. Similar things have happened um, in Hawaii on Oahu where they had like some restaurants that were there and then they're like, um, we don't know how long we're going to be here because they're going to build a big building here soon. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. basically had to like, they, like some of them moved and survived and some just like, ah, forget it. It's like okay. we invested so much into this location and then yeah. I'll have to like basically to- getting told we're going to get torn down. So yeah, it's super unfortunate. Yeah. But that's cool, man. You kind of brought back the, brought back the brand and kind of yeah. reinvented yeah, it. Right. So, so how was that? Like, um, did you kind of, talk to your dad like hey i'm thinking about kind of going off my own again and doing gills of paradise i want to bring it back or was he like hey come back and do this like what was that like what was the impetus for bringing it back you know okay well it's kind of a long story but yeah we were very passionate about cooking again uh so my father after that project uh he continued to work with a a canadian coffee company called blends blends coffee and um he worked, you know, pretty much from the bottom up. He became the vice president there. And uh, he was prob- probably the, the main guy to make matcha trend in North America. So what happened is matcha, you know, matcha tea yeah. is a huge thing now. But essentially, there was like a test run here by Starbucks in Vancouver. Because Vancouver mm-hmm. is the coffee capital, uh, not Seattle. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seattle, Starbucks is from Seattle, but <laughs> Vancouver yeah, is the coffee capital. Yeah, actually, yeah. Seattle's like a uh, flagship kind of test kitchen or test runs were all here in Vancouver. Yeah, that makes sense. That's it's where colder. the 
<laughs> it's it's more north, so it's better coffee drinking weather, right? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but essentially, yeah. Um, yeah, we have a lot of coffee shops here. But essentially, his uh, his boss or his partners at the time said, "Oh yeah, we really want to run with this much uh, uh, product too. Like, uh, let's make that work." And then he made all these recipes that uh, that really helped it trend. And then Starbucks got back in the matcha game, and then. Before you know it, everyone loves matcha. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh, let's get back on track here. Um, I just find it fascinating that your dad has been like, he was the sushi guy and now he's the matcha guy. And now he's the ra- he was the ramen guy. Yeah, for the, ramen guy. And it's, yeah. I love like people like that have those chapters in their life and like, oh yeah. Like, at yeah. one point in time, he was this, but now he's doing this. Kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then how did he, what was the impetus for bringing the gyopara back and the, uh, that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the chapter that I left off was about Jinya. So I, I worked at Jinya, and then um, I stepped away from the project after you know we had a nice, successful um, opening and everything. You know, everything went really smooth. Made a few recipes for them. They didn't have an egg recipe. <laughs> I had to make them make them uh, egg. <laughs> I'm pretty picky about my eggs. Pretty funny story. So I like my eggs. I like my yolk perfect, essentially. Mm. I hate it when the egg yolk is a little yellow. <laughs> God, it's not as pretty as, you know, perfect golden yellow, yeah, yeah. orange. Anyways, so, so I was like cooking for Virginia, but I didn't want to work for a franchise for too long, you know, because you're not cooking for yourself, you're cooking for someone else. And um, so, yeah, I stepped away from that project. And a few years later, uh, Nakata-san from Dumbo came to Vancouver seeking you know a canadian partnership for a franchise location and dumbo is already a award-winning uh noodle franchise uh company from japan and they make uh hakata hakata food you know tonkotsu ramen mm. um it's very uh very good and uh since my father you know is a businessman he said oh yeah, like, yeah i'll help you out like we'll help you establish here in vancouver and then we partnered up with them and uh before I know it, before I knew it, I was uh, opening the first Dumbo, international Dumbo location here in Vancouver, Kitsilano. And uh, super successful. We found a really small, you know, hole in the wall, kind of small izakaya place that we bought out, you know, and um, kitchen is super small, but Dumbo, our recipe was really simple. We just have uh, industrial grade, massive pressure cookers that cook the soup. And that's pretty much all you need. <laughs> and at all gyoza station, you know. Uh, it's a very, very small kitchen, but uh, we made it work. Super, super successful project. And uh, boom, boom, we opened up Dumbo Robson, which is the uh, downtown like, city center, essentially. And uh, we also found another izakaya that was perfect for baking. Yeah, and uh, perfect location. And now Dumbo has really established themselves as um, a really powerful, successful franchise. Yeah, really good. And um, yeah, so we did that. And uh, yeah, shout out to Zenta. <laughs> Zenta is still running around opening locations in like Brooklyn, Seattle, and yeah, just way. I guess once you have the formula that works, you just gotta re- yeah. recreate the magic everywhere. You just need some talented, you know, uh, line cooks because mm-hmm. these franchises you know they're very um they're very uh main central kitchen based you know they send stuff from japan that we used and uh really made everything easy 
but you know same problem with me again you know i was getting uh getting angsty like wanted to make my own noodles couldn't couldn't be boxed in by uh those franchise rescues and you know i stepped away from that as well and um that was 2016 i want to say that was very 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 fun very successful we had a great team and um yeah after that my father decided to um to you know for you didn't want to do coffee forever right you wanted to get back in the game and uh and establish good craft ramen here in vancouver and uh and I, uh, I really wanted to do that. It's pretty much been my dream to make, to make you know, your own, your own ramen and uh, serve it to everyone. So, so here I am, just uh, <laughs> making ramen every day. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool, man. How do you, that, like, you've been, so you've been involved in like at least three either franchise shops or your own shops openings. Uh-huh. Like what are some of the, like I, a lot of people that listen to the show, like they're trying to, they're trying to do pop-ups. Like a lot of them are home cooks that are trying to transition like to yes. pop-ups or stuff or to work, yeah. get, maybe potentially having their own shop. And some are like, they have a shop and they're just starting out. And the dream for a lot of these people right. are, I want to have my own shop one day, right? Yeah. Like what are right. things that people should be looking for? I mean, I guess in terms of like, what's the best things that they could do to ensure success, at least in the beginning, to make sure that they can last that first year, two years, three years, you know? Because it sounds like that Dumbo place is still kicking, you know, like, and that Jinya is Jinya. So it's going to be like, you know, they kind of have it done. So what what have you learned from those experiences of like opening and even opening your own shop? Like, what are some of the key things that people need to keep in mind when trying to do this thing and uh, for success in the future and stuff? Well, this year has been tough. Oh, of course. It's tough for everybody, man. Like, anything. I can't really give any real good advice because, you know, it's such a volatile volatile market and... uh, it's hard to say what's going to happen in the future, but um, and also shout out to all the home home cooks. Yeah, <laughs> I think everyone everyone's making great ramen these days. You know, it's really amazing. Um, but yeah, for successful like for a successful project, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, working off a franchise is easy. Was was easy work. You know, you don't need to make a, you don't need to really make any new menus. You're just working off someone else's menu. So in that regard, you know, that success was really easy. Going through those projects really easy. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm a big fan of craft ramen and all these pop-ups, you know, making that authentic ramen. And uh, for that to really, you know, blow up, I think there has to be more of a awareness for, for good craft authentic ramen. Because right now, especially in North America, you know, everyone's, everyone's kind of eating that kind of generic franchise-driven kind of same old, same old ramen, you know? And um, I really wish we would have more of a big scene like Japan. But. How do you, like, I got a question actually from um, the, the previous guest's name is Alex as well. He yep. asked a question for you. He's like, like, how do you tell like how do you, like just for the general person, how can a general person walk into a shop and just tell like, oh yeah, this shop is doing everything from scratch or trying really hard to make something on their own, and, and yeah, and and or or this shop is emptying soup from Japan shipped to them and heating up. Not, nothing wrong with that because that's like 
there's there's a reason Very why those shops are successful like those stuff that stuff tastes really good too so like how can someone tell you know like well the answer is you can't tell <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. the truth is even in japan they do that yeah yeah for sure current you know, it's, it's food for the people. So, you know, it's very common for little hole-in-the-wall shops in Japan to do that or, or, you know. So, you know, you can't just tell off, you know, you can't just tell off, you know, just the environment. <laughs> I mean, on our science, it says, you know, we're making everything. But hopefully there's more awareness so people like to, you know, find those kind of craft, craft uh, shops and kind of become more like ramen nerds that they like that kind of authentic experience. And uh, hopefully we have more competition when it comes to that. <laughs> and we, we build up a more of a craft ramen scene here in Vancouver. So it's such a hard thing too, right? Because like you're in this price point of like burgers and mm-hmm. yep. things like that. But to prep for burgers is like, oh, you're going to roll out like a bunch of burger patties to smash the next day or something, you know? Like, but right. ramen, you're spending hours making every single thing. It's the, the prep and the involvement yeah, yeah. into make a bowl, to making a bowl of ramen and then you're going to sell it at the exact same price as a burger that someone just like got some ground meat and smashed. And, you know, burgers are great yeah. and everything, but just in terms of time to prep something like that versus ramen, it's like For sure. it's not even close, you know? So it's a, it's, it's a, I would say like I can fully understand why people use any kind of soup bases and things because that's pretty much the only way you can make it where you can keep up with a burger shop. But how, yeah, like that's a, that's something that I'm trying to figure out too. Like, how do you promote craft ramen and kodawari ramen and mm-hmm. things like that? So people it just educating people to know, like, oh, there is a difference. But if there if the taste difference is negligible, then the market's gonna kind of just decide. Like, mm-hmm. that's something that's thing. It's things that I think about quite a uh, probably too much. <laughs> As someone who doesn't even own a restaurant, I think about it too much. But yeah, it's a it's a very loaded question. I mean, you know, because yeah. people are hungry for ramen. Yeah. And there's suppliers that that make, you know, concentrates and stuff. So people that want to open up a ramen restaurant, they have a lot of the, the tools there to, you know, get their foot in the door in that regard, for sure. Um but yeah, like vol like people want to move volumes and it's really it's difficult to uh, make a lot of products especially if you're doing like pythons <laughs> and things right like yeah yeah yeah. pythons super difficult yeah. mm-hmm. and that's what's popular so it's like how do you how do you even do that right. what is the ramen scene like in vancouver like is there like a high demand for ramen yes i've heard that there's some there's a lot of asian there's a big asian community in vancouver that's too right. but right but just in general like mm-hmm. compared to like the other big cities in i mean new york city is kind of like new york city and la and america is kind of like the ramen hubs i guess people okay say like yeah, so we're kind of like a little LA, I guess, because um, we have a really big Asian community, and um, we have a lot of ramen restaurants too. Yeah, and um, everyone likes tonkotsu. <laughs> <laughs> everyone likes tonkotsu and paitan. Uh, yeah, two big hitters here. Yeah, and, I can uh, imagine, man. Yeah, it's so, just like I, I feel like this. Is my theory, I have no proof of this or whatever, but. I feel like the reason people like those things, like the thick python soups, is it's so different than instant ramen. And most people grew up in in America right. eating instant ramen, and they have an image of this chintan show you instant ramen that came from a soup packet. Oh yeah, that could be it. Yeah. yeah, and so like when they taste tonkotsu ramen, like wow, this is a completely different experience, and it's like, and it tastes tastes really good, of course, you know, rich. Yeah, rich and the one that rich experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. 
so yeah. do, do you have it have you seen any kind of progression towards any kind of other exploration into chintans like is there any shop in in vancouver just thing like hey we only do shoyu ramen like in in new york city there's a couple of, like right. nakamura's nakamura-san's place in um in new york he does predominantly chintan like tanneke mm-hmm. kind of things and he doesn't do like too much tonkotsu at all right. and so in there's a little bit level of acceptance there there's also like i think it's i forget the name ishida there's they're doing that same thing too right. but, uh, is there any kind of progression towards that or is it just like no we love the tonkotsu here uh, we love that tonkatsu ramen yeah <laughs> tonkatsu, yeah very popular <laughs> Yeah, we have we have a few, you know, good locations that kind of hold down that Shintan style. Oh, really? Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and hopefully people kind of gravitate towards that more as they kind of expand their ramen palette and really, you know, start to diversify their options. And, you know, you start to really, well, I've grown older and I've learned to respect the Shintan kind of light broth a lot more. Yeah. I don't eat tonkotsu like I used to. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm 38. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but there's also people that, you know, fast and want to break their fast with like a big jiro or something. And yeah. Yeah. Greasy, really just, you know, indulge in the experience as well. So you got to respect both sides of the spectrum really. And, um, I do really see, I have a lot more respect for, you know, everyone's different tastes. Um, but personally, Yopara here, we, uh, we do chintan everything pretty much. Um, shoyu is pretty much our, our staple. But um, tonkotsu is much more popular. We do a tonkotsu from our divan. Uh, yeah. So it's a very, very limited amount uh, compared to our jinta. That's actually a great idea to do it for restaurants. Like you can basically double use the, the bones for both. And... Yeah, you got to add more. But essentially, yeah. you, have, you have a very, you can do a constant. Stretch rate. it out a little bit. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a classic Tokyo style, essentially. You know, uh, what you do is you take your chiban, your jinta, and then... Um, work with what you got left and try to make uh, I don't know what's there. But, uh, it's a little <laughs> yeah. different from Hakata you know Kyushu style we work with pork heads yeah that might be a little bit of a shock for some of your listeners but yeah it's uh, it's pork heads which is Kyushu style it's a little it's a little, yeah, it's a little I know. graphic I was, but... I was telling my dad last night I was having dinner with him and he was like he's, he's like a big fan of the, my YouTube channel and like just like happy but he's like He's like he loves tonkotsu ramen too, right. and I was like, "Did you know they they you, they put pork heads in it? That's how that's what they use in Japan." He's like, "That's gross. I wouldn't eat that." I was like, "You probably ate it in Japan. Like you just you just didn't know that you ate it. Like the brains and all, right. probably just don't know." Yeah, the brains got lots of good minerals, fats. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that style is good. Yeah, we use genkotsu, which is all you know, the humor. It's very rich in the uh, bone marrow content. It gives it that rich richness classic Tokyo style. Yeah, so that's a little bit different. Um, yeah, so when I was with Dumbo, yeah, we used, we used all Kyushu, classic Kyushu style, which I really respect. It's kind of like a, a lighter broth, just using the pork heads. Um, and also I really respect the pressure cooker that we use there. Um, because when you think of Kyushu, when you think of Hakata, you think of like all strong pork scent, you know, overpowering like aromas, you know, almost like like it's got an aura to it, you know, the restaurants, like, you know, when you go there. But um, Dumbo really made a name for themselves by using those industrial pressure cookers and, you know, uh, having a really fast extraction for the broth and gives it like a really, uh, very fast, fresh, a really freshness to it that uh, 
that cuts a lot of the uh the funk the funk yeah and <laughs> the, the, the recipe yeah. because yeah working with pork heads yeah you're gonna get a lot you gotta do a lot of scumming yeah yeah I was. I had oh, yeah. a question about that. Like, how right. the the technology has gotten so much better, in just in terms right. of everything, right? Like, we have That's all right. of this stuff now. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I was one question here. I forgot what I was going to ask. What do you think? Like, you're you're doing in your shop in Gilpata That's you know different and maybe better than what your family did in the past in the in previous right. in the previous Gilpata and <laughs> in Yoyo Ken. You know, like. What do you think that the, the, the tech upgrades have been in terms of like making ramen your way? Uh, well, we, we go pretty old school. We don't use any pressure cookers. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Pressure cookers, well, we, it's chintan based, right? So that's true. Our, yeah. our miso, we make, we make our home, we mix our miso at home and, uh, or here. And um, you know, that's how we make our miso ramen. But it's just for you days. That's our classic. And then, uh, yeah, so we know pressure cookers needed. But um, I really, really respect for sure just the technology for that is outstanding um but so yeah we're, we're old school in that regard just, um, yeah. how do you balance your respect for tradition and you know like your family's lineage and what they were doing in the past i guess yeah. it's a little bit different because your dad and your grandpa was also had a huge manufacturing company but just in terms of like balancing the traditions of ramen and today's market especially serving ramen outside of japan you know like and, right. Like, how do you balance those two things? <laughs> um, first, well, it's personal opinion, but personally, I like I like to respect the ingredients and really uh, respect the, the like non like not relying on additives and stuff like that. That's my personal uh, approach to the whole the whole thing. I'm a pretty spiritual person too and uh, I don't like my food to be junk food. You know, sometimes we all have our times where, you know, we fiend, you know, a bag of chips or what you want to junk out. But um, when it comes to my ramen, I want it to be like transparent and I want the ingredients to speak for itself. You know, working on, working with natural glutamates and working with natural kind of umami uh, components. So I think that's that's one of the biggest factors when it comes to industrial industrialized ramen making, mm-hmm. you know, everything being prepackaged, it's just really easy to rely on uh, preservatives that keep, you know, everything and also like, you know, artificial flavoring. Yeah. The science-based umami stuff, like you can just sprinkle in that, you know, inosinic acid MSG. or yeah, the MSG and stuff. I mean, that's like, if you can use it properly, I guess it's like not that big a deal, but it's definitely is, probably cheaper and easier to do that than oh, extract sure. everything from you're trying to extract that innocent acid from fish and chicken and pork exactly. and extract that glutamate from kombu or right. shiitake. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is not going to kill you obviously, but uh, <laughs> it is, it is an interesting subject. Yeah. I talk a lot, I talk a lot of shit about pythons, but actually I don't care. I think they taste great too. I just think that it's, it can be dangerous if that is the only thing people think about as ramen. And they get burnt out on that because they get older and they can't handle that, the python? that yeah. python sitting in their stomach for the whole day, you know, like, and, and it, yeah. I just, I just think it'd be a better for the ramen industry as a whole in America is if people were aware that there's other styles that you can eat and not feel like sh- complete mm. shit after, you know, like sometimes, right. yeah. you know, like, and just for the longevity sake of it, I have nothing against tonkotsu ramen. It's awesome. Like it tastes so good. Yeah. It's like a cheap day meal. 
yeah, I just think about that. Like, you know, it's like for, it's better to like, not just, you know, the, the opportunities are there to, to educate people that there's other styles that you could eat when you're not feeling that great. Your friends want to go off a ramen, but there's something else you can eat rather than you know, sometimes you don't want to eat that. Sometimes you just, you don't feel that great and you don't want to <laughs> eat something that's going to make you feel worse in a couple hours. So Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah. so can we talk about, let's talk about Gyopara now, like your Gyopara. Sure. Of course, right now, like it's kind of, COVID is messing up everything. Like there's so many businesses and restaurants closing down here where we are at. So I'm sure you're trying to yeah. figure out how to navigate that. Like, right. what have you been doing? Like, how has it been? And you can be honest, you know, like, I mean, it's probably, I can just imagine, like, I heard Vancouver is actually not bad. I heard Canada as a whole is not bad. Like, right, yeah. they're, they're doing the Stanley Cup playoffs in Canada for a reason, in the bubble in Edmonton. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, but I don't know Vancouver. Here. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, it's nothing like America. Uh, everyone's, you know, just walking around, enjoying the sun. And, uh, but when it comes to like, people visiting restaurants, yeah, like our business has been hit pretty hard. And um, we've been trying to combat that by, you know, focusing a little bit more on to-go. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that reminds me, I was watching your Ivan episode. It's really great. The same, the same thing. Making ramen for everyday, everyday ramen, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he loves his uh, simple, simple ramen. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, we've been doing a lot of our to-go stuff, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Skip, things like that. But you know, like like your previous guests have said, you know, as a ramen chef, you don't, you, you really don't want to do to-go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. I mean, we do make yourself kits as well. Like we do like raw noodles, like little instruction pamphlets, stuff for the the nerds that, you know, want to wanna blanch their own noodles and have fun, you know, at home. Make yeah. It but it's just, all that stuff just adds, adds friction, right? Like it's, how do you, like that seems to be the biggest challenge now with these, you're trying to pivot and like kind of innovate a little bit. But like making someone boil noodles and mix things, like it just adds friction, and people would much rather just let's let me microwave yeah. something and pour it in. Or yeah, and that's like why there's a lot of people places that do that. And but it's just like how do you, you know, you have your beliefs as a chef, you want yeah. this to, to be consumed in a certain way, and yeah, where do you sure. draw that line? Is always so hard for me to figure out. I mean, I don't have to figure it out because I'm not doing anything anyway. But I mean, imagine for you guys, you know. Yeah. Well. To tell you the truth, there has always been demaicho in Japan. You know? That's true. Yeah, yeah. Scoot- scooters. <laughs> Guys bring you bowl noodles on a scooter. <laughs> yeah. So it can't be too strict, you know. People have always been into go. That's true. That's true. How do you, in, in terms of just like operating restaurant, this is like aside from COVID, how do you balance that um, desire to serve the best quality ramen with the realities of cost and profit margins and things like that. Yeah. How do you, what, what things do you feel like just personally, like, okay, we can do this to stretch costs. Like you kind of mentioned the Nibban, you're doing Nibban the pythons mm-hmm. and things like, or like, how do you balance that? You know, like, what are you, what are you doing to balance those two things? Cause it sounds like you, you have a strong desire to serve really Kodawari you know, mm-hmm. bowls. But you still have to run a business. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's, I'd say it's my uh, my own slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all day, every day. So maybe that's helping with the cost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but you know, it's a passion project. You know, it's it's really just blood, sweat, and tears that go into this. You know, uh, we're here every day. You know, holding it down. I think that's one of the main things. You got to have passionate chefs that really love what love what they're doing. I think that's one of the core things. You know, it goes beyond profit margins and things like that, for sure. And um, but yeah, I think. Um, yeah, you got to balance everything. I mean, we are, our menu is pretty small. What it is, it looks big because we have a vegetarian menu. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just focus on what we like. Our few few bowls, you know, and our gyozas, karage. And just try to, and our fried rice. And kind of just try to make the best of that. And uh, I think a lot more people want to have that kind of uh, specialty house experience where they can kind of, you know, go to a specialty store instead of going to like a, you know, a big selection restaurant where you can just kind of pick and choose and stuff. I think that's going to die down more as we move into a new, new era where, you know, people specialize in their craft. And hopefully, you know, people come to us for our style of ramen and uh, that speaks to them. Yeah, that's true. I think fast casual is kind of like, I can't imagine like people younger than you digging like i really want to go to applebee's you know not just that's not that they're applebee's under the bus but, you know like it doesn't seem like the 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 generation z kind of thing like fuck, right. i'm really craving some red lobster right now you know yeah. it's more like oh do you check out you should go check out this really right. craft you know high-end ramen place rather like it just seems like the the consumer demands are shifting away from that kind of stuff yeah cool man um yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like what? So, can we talk a little bit about making ramen? Because a lot of people here yes, are yes, let's change it up. Making ramen, mm-hmm. I just find it interesting. Like, all the, I love all this, the the shop talking business stuff too. But yeah, um, what tips and advice do you have for people who are trying to make ramen? Like, what are you yeah. focusing on when you're making ramen? Like, what do you make first, and then what do you base right. that on? Like, I've heard lots of other people say that they make this noodles first and then base everything around that. Tare mm-hmm. first, base it around that. Like, what is your approach to making something? Uh, well, it all comes down to the mood. I think uh, food cooking in general, you know, it's very emotion driven. So if you're looking for that kind of big, rich, ultimate dining experience, you know, going for, going hard for that tonkotsu, then obviously then you're, you know, you brought the set, you're going, you're going to make that tonkotsu and you're, you're committed to it. Um, you know, or a paitan, tori paitan, you know, going with the, going for that, you know, savory chicken profile or, so, you know, kind of, you know, nail those moods out and then go from there, you know, because at the end of the day, you can carry any noodle to your broth, honestly. Uh, we, we let our customers choose their noodles after. Really? Yeah, so we, we pair our noodles with, you know, their default settings. Mm-hmm. So our tonkotsu comes thin, our tantan then comes medium, uh, but they, they have the option to, you know, uh, go with timomi. Like, well, I'm going to go for timomi today and they, they, have the, they have the choice to do that. So you know it's personal preference really at the end of the day when it comes to pairing your noodles so you know i'd say you know figure out your broth i think that's really important broth is like the center centerpiece for your for your ramen experience and um yeah i would i would say broth 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 <laughs> so focus on that. Are, are you like um i've heard that some people say that or not there's a book that i have that talks about this that there's certain ways to approach tare. It's that you go yeah. soup first, focus on soup, and then tare is a complement to the soup. 
right. and then there's other shops that go tare first because mm-hmm. they don't know if the consistencies of the product that they're going to get is going to change. Exactly. So your right. it sounds like your your thing is more soup first, and then tare complements mm-hmm. is back yeah. to the soup. So yeah, I've listened to some of your past guests, and they're so they're so informative and such. Yeah, some really good guests. Yeah, I definitely resonate with the fact that the tare is kind of like complementary to the broth. But like like uh, your guests have said in the past, if you can stabilize and you know make your tare solid, then it definitely helps you know uh, create consistency in the broth and and everything for sure. Uh, but I, I'm a simple person, you know. I, I like my tatter really simple, um, for sure. You at least, um, but for miso and stuff, yeah, you can get pretty creative in my miso tatter. I can get into that later. Yeah, <laughs> I got a few tips for miso. Yeah, oh, might as well just share them now. I just tried to do miso. <laughs> and it was freaking. Yeah, it was okay. I, I like, love your video. I, 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 I put so much work into that one and yeah. like to be honest like it was okay but i just first of all it's like 90 <laughs> degrees in hawaii when i was eating right. it and so oh, it's yeah. hard to eat like for me yeah. anyway like super mm-hmm. something super hot and when it's hot everywhere mm-hmm. and it's super humid but right. i mean, just i always struggle with miso like what tips can you get yeah. from miso yeah. me too oh yeah so like i said uh you know our history comes from that classic tokyo shoyu kind of uh-huh. you know very uh traditional chukasoba style, not Sapporo or anything. So miso has been uh, secondary to that shoyu profile, you know? So I had to do a lot of my own uh, homework and a lot of my own uh, studying to really satisfy my own miso standards. Um, you know, also I've been, I've been to Japan many times. I've been, I lived there for a month and all I did was eat ramen. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I've, I've experienced some different types of ramen and, um, yeah, like miso, miso is difficult. It's, you know, you, if you have unbalanced miso paste, it can overpower and be too salty and uh, kind of overpower the natural flavors that are delicate in the broth. Or, you know, it can be too much or too little. It can be almost like miso soup, you know, where it's just not enough punch. And uh, yeah, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a craft on its own. Uh, but um, yeah, I got a few miso tips. Um, one that's a tip in general is aging. Flavors change with age. And uh, that goes for our tare. And um, that goes for miso, obviously, as well as a, as a fermentation. You know, The miso cures all the ingredients inside of it. So you, you don't be afraid to you know, toss, some, toss some stuff in there. And just leave it in the fridge for weeks, you know. Um, some places leave their miso paste in jars and just let it sit for months, you know, to let that all those flavors really, really you know, combine and evolve. Which is really fascinating. Um, but yeah, so the two major, major tips that I have for miso lovers and people trying to up their miso game is to throw in a lot of, um, a lot of chopped onions so this might come to surprise some people but it's really really simple it's just like cooking curry you know to make good curry you gotta you gotta caramelize a lot of onions <laughs> so are so, you putting in caramelized onions or are you putting that's in right. Um, that's right so oh, what wow. i used to do in the past is i was lazy just toss some onions in there you know blend it but it was not enough and uh that caramelization that is where the sweetness and that all that flavor 
no, it's just like cooking basic, you know, basic one one is caramelization. And, uh, and it's super, super useful when making your miso is to just, you know, caramelize a lot of onions and um, blend it into your tare and combine, yeah, combine it, combine your tare and then combine that with your, um, your miso paste. And then let that sit for uh, into your fridge for, you know, as long as you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I, I, I know that there's like so much salt in miso and things and it's probably okay, but it's always like, man, is this really going to be okay? Like you got like cooked onions and garlic and ginger yeah. in here. And like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Because it's cured. It's, um, the miso will preserve it in its own way. It's own, like it's own, it's own way. Miso is a very fascinating ingredient. You know, it lasts in your fridge forever. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets darker and darker as you just let it sit. <laughs> I have some sh- um, shiro miso that's like red, dark red. <laughs> it's like I found it at the back of my fridge. Like, oh, I think it's still edible, but I don't know if it tastes like what it's supposed to taste like anymore. Or they maybe taste better. Do you have any tips for like any of the other styles of tare? Like, um, I thought I recently did a the sanosan shio tare, mm-hmm. and I was so like skeptical of that one because it's just like ton of like um salt in a dashi basically that's all it was but it's pretty amazing and the thing that's been most fascinating for me is that it's been getting better as it just sits in my fridge and ages a little bit oh, nice. which i thought you know would be counter to like oh i thought dashi components die you know like yeah, that's yeah. what i've always heard and been told like oh dashis die in a day or two so mm-hmm. but i've just i just kept it in there i talked to keizo about it and he's like maybe it'll get better because I, I guess that's what he does he he keeps his shiotades for a long time and ages them and it's been getting better and better. So I'm just kind of curious if you have yeah. any kind of like secret pro tips. That's... Shout out to the Discord for, <laughs> for like the shio tares and shio tare, yeah. shio yeah. these things like that. So yeah, uh, well, the secret pro technique, the secret is that, yeah, all, all these, you know, old school restaurants, they have what's called like a, like a house, like sauce, like house tare. That's really old. Like a mother, mother tare. Yeah, mother tare. Just keeping yeah. it going. Wow. You know, it's that, that kind of concept is kind of new to the West, you know, you, you kind of think it's like unsafe or something, but, but I mean, you're taking, you're giving, you're taking, so it's not really old, but it helps kind of create a distinct flavor profile that, um, that, yeah, and gives a certain kind of age to it. And, um, it's really fascinating. And you only work with, you know, super salinity, like super soy sauces and stuff. You don't want to have any kind of extra moisture. You don't want to have too much um, water content or anything mm-hmm. when you work with, with uh, Asian because that's going to get your way. Um, but yeah, I'd say, well, we, our, our house style is chassis driven. So the, oh, okay. the, the secret, let you know, secret. So, <laughs> When you we do when you braise your chashu and then you have kind of like a braising chashu liquid, that chashu liquid isn't the secret tare. It's actually there's a second sauce that you rest the chashu in because hot chashu, if you don't rest it, it's gonna dry up a bit. So you let it marinate, not in the hot temperature, but you let it marinate in like the, the cold shoyu. And then that gives a chance to kind of like uh, sponge take all that juices without bleeding, you know, and, uh, cause you don't want lean, you don't want lean dry chashu. <laughs> uh, and then, so you, and then you can create like a, a special, essentially chashu infused tare that, that uses that kind of helps that 
uh, soy sauce lose kind of its edge and it becomes um, house sauce eventually. That's interesting. Uh, I think what you're referring to in Japanese, they call it shiokado, right? That's, that's what they're calling it. Yeah, what, it, it was the color edge. What, what is that? Like, what, like, I've read it in recipe books a lot. Like, how would you describe that in English? Like, okay, what is that? Is it that sharp? Uh, it's like, sharp, yeah. That sharp kind of like, ooh, yeah. stinging, salty. Like, it's, yeah. it's hurts. Right. To, it's so salty, it hurts kind of thing. Yeah. Is that what it is? So, I'm not sure what it yeah, is. You can test this at home. So, kado means corner or uh-huh. edge, you know, yeah. like kanji. And uh, it's pretty good, you know, pretty good one-to-one translation, you know, kind of like the edge to, to your to that profile. Um, you can test this at home. You, you just, you know, taste a little bit of soy sauce. It has that, you know, distinct kind of kick to it. But then if you boil or bring to, bring to a temp, like a, bring to a boil, you taste that same soy sauce. And all of a sudden, it has different aromatic, uh, you know, profile. And all of a sudden, it doesn't have that kick anymore. That's kind of like you losing the edge on the on the on that soy sauce. And that's very common for Japanese sauces, you know, whether it be for like a donburi, like a rice bowl, or teriyaki, you know, you cook cook the soy sauce or reduce it with meeting and you know dashi or and sake or you know whatever it be. So um, it's very common in Japanese cooking to you know, cook the soy sauce. Hmm. Um, but yeah, or just having the chashu help help that can you know can even just change the uh, the kado for sure. Interesting. Yeah, I always see that word in like recipe books and things, and it's like I was like, what is that? Because <laughs> I know what the words mean, but I'm always like, what does that taste like? But it's like, so I, when I just taste stuff, it's like, oh, I can't. I think that's what they're talking about. Yeah. All right, we got a bunch of listener questions. We can start getting into. All right. Um. Let's see. So we got a lot of questions about gyoza, actually. Oh, wow. Gyopara, okay. uh, the, the name, I guess. So Royal Ramen is asking if you have any advice for making gyoza. <laughs> uh, well, pro techniques for gyoza. It's definitely an art, too. Uh, you know, obviously, um, having a really good blender uh, helps because you don't want to destroy that cabbage um, cellular wall because... You want to be salting that cabbage. Cabbage is the primary ingredient, by the way, for for Japanese traditional gyoza. Interesting. Quite fascinating, yeah. So, you know, dumplings, there's so many different types of dumplings, but uh, from Manchuria, they had a lot of um, immigrants from Manchuria come to Japan, and they established their Manchurian dumpling style. And that's, you know, the classic Japanese gyoza now. It's, uh, oh. it's very cabbage-driven. Because, you know, you go to China, you got a lot of, you know, meaty or seafoody yeah. um, gyozas. Uh, or dumplings, but um, yeah, the, the classic Japanese gyoza is Manchurian. Uh, interesting. And uh, so, so cabbage is super important because uh, cabbage is full of water and uh, without correct salting and correct uh, massaging, you're going to have different uh, hydration levels near, near the top, you know? So I think that's actually one of the key factors. You know, you can, you can, scoop out your salts and your sauces and perfect, you know, perfect to the gram. But if you don't have consistent uh, gyoza technique that can really uh, massage the cabbage of its, of its excess, excess uh, water, but not too much. You don't want to dry it out too much, you know? You've got to find a sweet spot for that. I think that's really important to find that, find that old sweet spot. 
think that's probably the most important factor that can create variables in your Doza content. Um, besides that, yeah, it's a lot of love. <laughs> <laughs> You guys make all your own gyoza too, right? Like, do you guys even make right. the wrappers and stuff? Because the wrappers are like, uh, no, we don't. That's like make next the level. <laughs> yeah, that's like home for like your family. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Just a few hundred, you know, not uh, thousands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're gonna roll out like a thousand little wrappers. A little bit nuts. Okay, um, let's. But I do love a thick thick wrapper. Oh yeah, thick wrappers. Thick wrappers are. I was trying to figure out how to make those. I I have no idea even how how they're even made. Like I've seen some people on YouTube and stuff just make them when they're making noodles. They just cut an extra slab and rather they cut the noodles. There's still kantsui in there, but there's still kantsui in there. There's there's no kantsui. Oh, no kantsui in there. Interesting. Essentially, yeah, you would make out little play dough, kind of like um, little snakes. Yeah, yeah. And then you would cut them into little uh, little slices of cylinders, and then you can palm them down into a nice little circle. And then uh, get a little roller and then roll out the edges. Interesting. So there's like no like um, kansu in there. So it's like super high hydration, kind of like. Yeah. Like, oh, interesting. How do you guys do? This is a question from B4R. How do you guys do gyoza for service? Are you like doing it made to order or are you keeping it right. hot? So we, we, we make them in house and then we have a little freezer to freeze them. And um, I know, you know some people like freshly wrapped, but. You know, it is a it is a ramen restaurant, so yeah. you gotta you gotta pick and choose. But essentially, freshly wrapped is not possible. <laughs> not, not even not even in a gyoza restaurant. Like, yeah, you just wait thirty minutes for your gyoza to come yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally not possible. Yeah. But you know, freezing you cannot underestimate the power of frozen uh, food products. You know, Our, the reason why Skiman, you know, I talked about Skiman in the past, became so powerful is because you know, in the age where no one had freezers and people only had sellers, you know, it was a it was a huge product. But like frozen foods preserve the ingredients. You know, it's like I don't want to say cryogenic freezing. <laughs> it, it, it preserves the ingredients and kind of time walks it. You know, and anyone you know, the listeners that love you know crafting noodles, uh, homemade noodles, know that the aging process is super important to you know find a sweet spot. You know, trying to find out what what stage in the aging cycle of your noodles that you like and stuff so freezing noodles at the most pristine moment kind of uh would essentially preserve the quality and the same can be said for gyozas you know um so we we make them fresh and then we freeze them and then we just take them out uh to order to um order it's, it's great cool that's a that's a good tip on the noodles. <laughs> I usually just like make noodles, leave them in the fridge. Like, oh shit, they're getting kind of old in there. Let me put them in the freezer. It's not like I'm trying to like capture the best, yeah. the best thing. Bring it to freezer. Yeah, I should, I should maybe be more uh, deliberate and thoughtful on that. Like, okay, mm-hmm. it tasted great this day. I should put them in the freezer yeah. rather than like, mark it on the calendar. Yeah, you, know, so you kind of know where it's at in its life. How do you do that? Like, how do you judge like the aging if it's aged appropriately? And like, what is your markers for? those kind of things uh, well i mean every noodle is different yeah of course but um i don't know just few, you would have to rest it a few days i would say and um if you freeze them you know three four days later that's a pretty good benchmark you know you take it from there obviously home home cooking is difficult in its own so right 
not the same thing as mass producing the same mm-hmm. same thing over and over. But yeah. Yeah, there's so many yeah. more variables in home cooking. Have you have you ever tried to make ramen at home? Like it's it's a pain uh, in the well, butt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I make pastas, but like yeah, I've been spoiled since because uh the noodle machine that I grew up with and stuff. Yeah, I, uh, that's not that's not my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> I do love all the science, like the the premium, like potassium content. Yeah, high high having high potassium compared to sodium. Factors like that can can change it. And, yeah, um, yeah, like it's it's really fascinating, really, and. Um, hydration levels like like i said the atmosphere can even change it like sometimes you know it's hot that's going to completely change your change yeah. it'll get softer than you yeah. want it to be and yeah. um yeah i think also one of the major factors is like how you form the gluten like you know in the noodles that that's super important you don't it's in japanese it's called koshi when mm-hmm. you have the kind of that resistance when you chew into that noodle i i really think that's I, one of the primary factors I look for when you're when you're making noodles or when you're buying noodles or whatever it may be that koshi factor. Um, people from you know the South Kyushu style they use thin noodles, but the, the thin noodles you can't create that same koshi, you know. So you kind of have to rely on firmness, which is not the same thing. Firmness, yeah. So that's why it's such a huge. Uh, I don't want to say meme, but. <laughs> Going hard on noodles like barikata, you know, uh-huh. um, harigane, kona <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You can go pretty hard on the on the thin noodles, but that's not the same thing. Like, I'm not a fan of that. I don't, I don't like when you try to mask the the al dente, you know, that that iconic bite in your noodles with firmness. So, hopefully, you know, people kind of try to find that happy middle ground where you can get that cue without, you know, sacrificing anything. Yeah, it's, that, all those things that you said, like, it really, really reminded me, like, how um, there's all this specialized, like, yogo for all these yeah. Japanese terms for things that a lot of people in the West don't even think about, you know, like, the, mm-hmm. koshi, the, the, the yeah. men's uh, noodles koshi and things like that. Like, I don't think people, yeah. I don't even think about that stuff. And then, <laughs> you're getting nuts, man. Yeah. yeah. So we got... We got a couple of troll-ish questions. <laughs> yeah, about as it. always. I've, yeah. I've reward, rewarded them because, <laughs> uh, in a way, because I think some of these things are interesting. Because yeah, okay, yeah. so I'm gonna set up this yeah. first question. Yeah. In in the Discord server, you've said in the past about yeah. you've talked about the double pour and the double pour is right like yeah. you're you're pouring the soup into and I do it I do it a lot in my videos <laughs> so I'm I'm also oh, gonna yeah. do this and sure. so um, Chika Ramen asks. In ramen heads, Tomita does a double pour. How does that make you feel? Well, I mean, you can double pour all you want. Um, <laughs> it's not going to change dramatically. We're uh-huh. the discussion we had in the Discord was about uh, harigane and kono otoshi and just uh-huh. serving, serving pretty much raw noodles like uh, hakatafu. Really, you know, really sensitive product, you know, because you some of these noodle blanches are only two seconds. Yeah, yeah. And Konotoshi is two seconds, and uh, you can just imagine how how sensitive the noodle the noodles are. You know, it's like like two seconds blanch. It doesn't even make sense. Like, it's so hard. Um, so we were on that discussion. We we're t- on the topic of you know trying to 
have the noodles cook in the soup essentially as you serve I see, it. I see. So now, of course, of course, you want to serve the hottest product possible. I I make sure the ceramic content, the porcelain content, in my bowls are good, and I I make sure that my bowls are super hot, so hot to the point that I can't even touch them. And uh, that's how I like to serve my noodles, very last second. So it's about a 52 second blanch time for my for my noodles, and for that. It gives me, you know, less than a minute to prepare the tare, the oils, and everything, and then I pour my boiling, boiling hot soup into the into the bowl as the timer rings. So, you know, you want you want to put your love into the craft and serve fast as you can, and that's where that kind of <laughs> this funny discussion came up about double pour. I, I coined that term essentially. It's not a big, <laughs> it's not a big deal. But um, my I have a background. My my mother and my grandmother. Are matcha ceremony tea artist oh, i see i see yeah so now i understand a little bit more right. yeah. so so and you know in tea in the tea world you boil your you got a kettle of water and then you pour it into your your cups uh your little you know your cups and then um that cools down temperature significantly mm-hmm. so i i just implemented the same kind of theory that um and also you know like was you know or South, southeast asian you know, stunts, tea stunts, right? Coffee stunts where they like cool the tea down, cool the coffee down by pouring it. That, that, uh, are you talking about the one that they're doing those huge yeah, pour things? Like, yeah, huge pours. So I thought, hey, well, I guess every pour will affect the temperature of the, of my, of my soup. So I should be more, more thoughtful and, uh, you know, be, be aware of that instead of doing multiple shenanigans that can cool. <laughs> Uh, that's where that discussion came from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to double pour, I mean, go ahead. No one's going to stop you. Yeah. Not a big deal. <laughs> I, do that. I do that all the time. And I'm like, oh. You know, I'm always trolling on this video. He, he is judging me as I'm filming <laughs> this video. <laughs> Honestly, double pour is not as big of a problem as a good uh, noodle shake. The, what, what bothers me is watery soup because you put all this love into your soup, you know, yeah. your chefs, your cooks. All these, you know, great, great people put a lot of their love and effort into their profile. Everything's to spec, make that super effect. And then you have a line cook that, you know, disrespects that by putting it. <laughs> they're like just yeah. waving a magic wand, basically. Yeah. They're not, yeah. You can see the water just like yeah. you know, in there. And it'll definitely change the, completely change everything. And um, what's your biggest pet peeve when it comes to like ramen making? Like you see somebody uh, like God, I, what do you think? Is that is that I it? Mean, yeah, soggy and cold, soggy and cold ramen. I cannot stand. I, I would probably just complain. I well, I have you know my own restaurant. I have you know I have to. I can't be you know fooling around, but if I could, I would be like, no, I, I can't. I can't take it. Like, yeah, send it just back. send it back to the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah see, that's that's what I was going to ask you because. I when I had um, ramen kalanashi on and, and some oh. of the other places I think Motoki too they they both had shops overseas like in Southeast Asia nice. and they said like you know people just don't eat ramen as hot as Japanese people eat it outside right. of Japan so like how have you seen that in Vancouver too like you said yes. you're serving piping hot ramen that's right like, what are they they just gonna oh I'm just gonna let that sit and cool down exactly. for a little bit exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's piping hot yeah. and uh, people will take their time with it for sure uh, I see that's just part of the learning curve <laughs> people were still new to the, the slurping because the slurping action really oxidizes and cools down significantly and uh I, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of science behind that too. Like, you know how um, people that cup wine or like wine tasters and yeah, coffee, yeah, for sure. they always gargle and like kind of oxidize in their mouth and yeah. kind of give it a little swish. It's kind of like the same concept where those flavors, when they oxidize, it gives it a huge impact, like it changes, changes dramatically. So the slurping, you know, there's actually a good benefit to slurping. Not only are you able to eat hot food because it cools it down, that, that oxidization in your mouth that can burst the flavor, you know, it's a, it's a bit of science benefit. I, I still can't do it right. Like I, I needed to grow up in Japan. Like I do it. And I'm like, my mouth is on fire. <laughs> like, the trick just, is to get a really small bite. Okay. You just pull That's one bite right. and you yes. pull it up into the sky, you know, and you let it cool. Cause when you pull that one strand up or two strands up or whatever yeah. it be, and you pull it up, that portion is going to cool down. So you can okay. eat it. Whereas it's not going to affect the rest of your bowl. And then you slurp that piece that's okay. untangled. And uh, then, yeah, you're good to go. All right. I'm going to try that next time. Because sometimes I'm like, mm. I don't know how to do this. And it's like, <laughs> my mouth is all burnt the next day. Yeah. And stuff. All right. So this next question is, it's actually like, so the person asked it. So first of all, I'm going to say this person cha- created a fake account sure. to ask yeah. this question. Because there, they, we had a, a ramen contest a long time ago. And then they, um, there was a mystery person that came in to watch the judging. And it was DJ Pine, their name was DJ Pineapple and they had like a pineapple face and stuff. So anyways, whoever this person is, they made like a fake account. I don't think it's the actual right. DJ Pineapple that was in the Zoom room at the time. Right. But, you know, like you've gotten into it with some people on the server and, you know, like it's hard to find, to have conversations when it's just in text because you can, can't, like that's why I like to do this. Like I can see your face, you know, yeah. I can read your, your reactions and things. And it's sometimes when we're just typing, it's hard to kind of understand yeah, where people sure. are coming yeah. from. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. so this person, they asked this question in a way that was kind of like trying to just goad you on, but I, I'm actually curious about this in, in my own, for my own personal reasons, like mm-hmm. in what ways has, so DJ pineapple 69, I like how they added oh, yeah. 69 in there to make yeah. it extra trouble. In what ways has owning a shop affected you personally? Like in terms of like the way right. that you operate and your interactions with people and things like that, mm-hmm. has it changed you in any way you think? Yes. Uh, very stressful. Mm-hmm. So you try to find ways to unwind outside of work because you're just, stress now working all day and it's a japanese philosophy to you know cheat your patrons like gods you know yeah yeah gods. so you know there's another term called kinse where you really put your heart and soul into your work and you lower yourself you lower your head and you really just put your work into your craft and uh, i definitely live by that so when I, i'm here all day I, you know i used to work nine to like 12 mm-hmm. 9 a.m to 12 night Sometimes, you know, you, you don't have time to sleep because you're just too busy working yeah. and uh, things like that, you know, you do that every day. It's going to stack up on you and um, definitely need ways to, you know, relieve stress. And uh, this year has been a lot of stress for everyone, for sure. And yeah. um, <laughs> it can, can definitely uh, get a little, you know, arguments in here and there. Yeah. But I, I actually like commend you because you know you came in, you apologized, and you've you've been you've been trying to you know be better. <laughs> and like it's, yeah, I was it's, going to that's that's like something for me. Like I don't care if you fuck up. Like anybody can. I fuck up all the time. Like I made tar- mm. like you know. But if you can kind of apologize and you can make an effort to make to be better, it's like fuck. Who cares? Like that. Like you're human. You know. Mm-hmm. Nobody's gonna judge you for that. You know. So I, I really do appreciate it. You know, I, I seen I seen what you've been doing on the, on the Discord, and you know. 
you've been trying to help people and you're being really positive. So I, I give you credit, but cause I can't imagine how stressful it is to own a restaurant <laughs> during COVID right now. Oh, so, it's like yeah. 70% of our, they, they said like 70% of restaurants are going to close down here. Oh, I can believe it. They said on, on Kauai, my island, they said 40% of all businesses in general are going to close down yeah. next year. So it's just so, super stressful for everyone. So, and like I haven't, uh, I don't know if you probably listen to, if you, if you listen to the other podcast, like we had a sale going from my previous business that fell through because of COVID. Mm. And so we now we have to like kind of scramble and figure out what I'm going to do before I have the, my next kid in next month. And oh, wow. um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been stressful, like for everybody, for myself included, I haven't been the best person that I feel like I can be, could be. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, I just want to say thanks for, you know, what you're doing in the discord server. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully no one takes my trolling seriously. No, you're, you're doing, I'm always, I'm always good for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, like I said, anybody can fuck up and make mistakes it's how you deal with it after for sure you know that that speaks more to me than the actual Mm -hmm. mistake itself that's unless you unless you kill somebody on purpose then it's kind of like he's he apologized yeah he he apologized but he still kind of killed somebody (laughs) maybe that one is a little bit too much but you know i feel like everybody has room for growth in their life so for sure all right um simon minard asks what is your noodle making process in the shop well, since since we sold that noodle machine off, we actually have um, the uh, the company make it for us. Right? Okay. But where well, you guys know Yamachan, Yamachan Noodle Company, they actually because of us, I think they they came up here to know Van, uh, into Vancouver, shut up a new um, new noodle making plant, new factory, and um, yeah, it's really unfortunate for them to actually. So we get we make our own custom noodles. And uh, they were supposed to shut, open in November of last year, 2019. Uh, but they still haven't opened, I think, and they lost a lot of their, a lot of their main, main guys. So unfortunate. But that's a, something I'm actually looking forward to is to uh, get into the noodle factories and like get my hands on kind of like Sun Noodle and uh, and make more noodles. But yeah, right now our machine is actually located uh, not in the restaurant. The noodle making machine is like ten foot long, and um, it's in a, it's in a, it's in Chinatown here in Vancouver. And uh, yeah, shout out to um, Double Happiness Noodles. They're still continuing on and making our noodles for us. And, uh, and yeah, it's like a it's a classic medium nishin, I believe it's the size. So the noodle size is determined by the Japanese inch, like a three centimeters roughly. I think. Oh yeah, is that is that like the um when mm-hmm. they're giving that like what is it called? Yeah. I forget what it's called. Yeah, yeah. My Japanese is terrible. Yeah, ishin. Ishin. Oh okay okay. So one ishin is about three centimeters, and that's divided into twenty two like bytes. It turns into about one point three six millimeters, I think. Um. Yeah, the that cut. So those are kind of those those little teeth to the machine come in. Uh, like those three centimeter like little inch teeth and uh, depending on your noodle machine because some have a wider set or you know a kind of like a thin set you you calculate it by the uh by the issue by the by the three centimeters at a time mm-hmm. the, the teeth set in because you know when you're making noodles uh you want to set it by the length like certain certain noodles you have a certain length you know so when it comes out of the machine that's gonna that's gonna factor in like the portion sizes and stuff you know 
and that's going to completely affect everything when you push it. And so it's pretty fascinating to like, oh, all these facts, the noodle making things are so interesting. I find it like that. So in America, we have Sun Noodle. They're mm -hmm. like the, they're from Hawaii, but they have manufacturing right. plants in New Jersey and California. And I think somewhere in the Midwest, either in Texas or somewhere in the Midwest too. And um, so like they supply noodles probably almost, I wouldn't, I don't know the percentage, but I would, right. I wouldn't be surprised if it's over 90% of all ramen shops in America yep, get I their noodles so. from Sun Noodle. Mm -hmm. I always find the problem is unlike, so you guys, you, you've made noodles before and you know the process of making noodles. So when mm -hmm. you order noodles, you yep. can know, I want this thing, this thing, I want these characteristics right. in it. Uh -huh. A lot of people that open shops that don't make noodles, they don't know right. what noodle matches with the soup. Right, right, right. So one of the so, one of the pet peeves for me is uh, when people put in too much additives. Like we we don't have like any kind of like weird ingredients in the noodles because if you put too much like egg egg powder protein or mm. things like that or any kind of like um, ingredients that make the noodles too slippery, the noodles don't grasp the noodle the soup as well you know there's not as much synergy and uh i don't like that plasticky uh feeling in my noodles so that that kind of bothers me as well as um before i forget i want to mention like there's a lot of bounce back when it comes to you know when you craft your noodles when you're sheeting you're sheeting your product you know um at home especially you know it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult i was going to say one of the good benefits for using an industrial grade machine as you got industrial grade mixers that can work with the hydration levels and get it perfectly mixed. You know, that's super important because that's going to completely affect the chewiness of the noodles. And then when you're shooting the, these massive machines, these massive pin rollers can um, slowly, you know, sheet your noodles down to the correct size. So it's not going to, once you cut it, it's not going to bounce, you know, become double the size you thought it was going to be because the massive amount of, PSI and the horsepower can really, really help with that. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so a lot of love to all your home home noodle <laughs> maniacs that I, take your time with all that. There's like a, a huge. My my brother-in-law has like this old like noodle machine from Japan from like the 1930s or something. It's just cast wow. iron. Like it probably weighs like 20 pounds. Like oh, yeah. it's like maybe like this big, but you have to like really put your muscle into lifting it to the table. Yeah. We tried it that on it is like freaking yeah. you can smash anything in that thing and it just like oh, wow. makes it perfectly and when i try to compare it to like just the pasta machines that we have it's like right right yeah. it makes me want to like try to get one from japan like one of those old yeah. school like cast iron because you can't do that with, with, with the mercado atlas like right it just doesn't have the pressure to do that properly yeah, pressure is, that's gonna completely that's one of the limiting factors at home yeah that's why i was yeah i was yeah. It's yeah. hard. And hard. But like, going back to it, like, um, I feel like a lot of these shops that, you know, they, they serve, they serve a ramen or whatever at the shop and they all just, they talk to some noodle and like, just give me whatever you want. Some noodle can make some fantastic noodles, but if, if the chef is not being thoughtful and pairing their noodle properly, it's going to make some noodle look bad. Like, Oh, some noodles aren't mm -hmm. that good, but like some noodle can make really, they have the technology to make the best noodles. Yeah. You know, some of the best they noodles have out there. Insane factory over there. They have an insane facility. It's yeah. Like, it's really impressive. So I, I just wish that like more, more of these shops that are just serving ramen would like be more thoughtful. Like, okay, I'm serving this style and this style of ramen soup. I, I got to pair it with this noodle because it's X, Y, and Z rather than just like, mm -hmm. hey, send noodles, send me some noodles. I'm going to sell right. it. You know, that's kind of like, that's kind of mm -hmm. one of my pet peeves anyway. Like where it's like, yeah. 
Anyways, um, a trap of trap for fools asks, how would you? Oh, I asked you that question already, so you don't have to answer that one. How would you incorporate innovation into the process, deeply rooted in traditions? Um, awesome, awesome Jenkins asks, how do I prevent my emotion from breaking? He's talking when he's making pythons. It's like, or how can I recognize early that it's gonna oh, break? Emotion? Yeah, you know, like when you're when What's you're that? making a python, sometimes like it'll split when you cool it, and it's just like mm-hmm. fat, and it's like the bottom is just basically like a chintan, like a clear chintan, and then you, the top is just like fat, you know. Well, toy python is not my specialty because okay. I've always been like a pork guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty cool. I mean, the easy way out is to just keep it a blend blend right and yeah yeah that there's the content the state multiplied um but yeah 20 python is on my is on my niche <laughs> <laughs> okay. I gotta ask, uh, else. you gotta ask the one of those tonkotsu guys yeah. You know? all right yeah so ramen nuts ask what's the best way or best steps to achieve balance when you're making ramen balance a deep philosophical question. <laughs> well, it's a good one because it's the last <laughs> one, so I saved it for the end. Uh, I like. I think I mentioned this before, but I think you want the ramen to speak for itself, and um, you know, it's easy to make kind of rich, rich soups, with rich sauces, rich ingredients, rich toppings, overpowering flavors. You know, it's very common in the West here, and uh, there's a huge demand for it, obviously. But um, as like a ramen fanatic, sometimes you find a lot more, you know, solace and kind of comfort in the simple things, you know, working with like the super simple tares, the the broth that you just made that, you know, you, you know, it's full of aromatic complex flavors that really impact the flavor. Because yeah, like the, the aroma is, is a huge factor when it comes to tasting anything, right? So things like that, I think balancing those factors is gonna really up your experience. And um, I still obviously respect really rich soups and nothing against those, but if you're looking for balance, I think, you know, you find happiness, you know, in the simple things like show your own and uh, really craft, work on that, you know, simple, simple craft. Yeah, I feel like there's just like less to hide behind when you're doing something yeah. like that. So it has to be, it, it almost like forces you to be more balanced when you're For doing sure. something like that. Yeah. Cool, man. That's basically all the questions I got. Um, do you want to add anything else before we, you want to talk about anything else before we go or? <laughs> I don't know. I know, I can, you, I know I you to, <laughs> I know that you prepped a lot of notes, it seems like. So, I mean, like anything uh, that we missed or anything? Oh, uh, you know, I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, the oh yeah, there's one thing I missed. We used we use a really interesting water filter. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I, I was gonna ask you about that, but I forgot to write the question down. Like I saw on your website, there's a specific, even link to it <laughs> from your web, your your Gilpata website links yeah. to the website yeah. for that water. What is, what is that? I didn't it's explain. New G seven. Okay. And it's uh the it's got it's got a patent patent for it, and um, essentially it's the only patented quantum water filter in the world right now it's uh it's very fascinating it's it's really fascinating so essentially the water passes through the the filter unit and it reorganizes and restructures the water molecules 
And um, yeah, it's, it's super. I'm not a scientist, but that, it's really, really interesting. And, uh, Can you taste the difference? Like when you make Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? I used to hate drinking water, but I drink nothing but water all day now because the water is so good here. Interesting. Mm. So uh, it actually increases the level of dissolved hydrogen like mm. in the water. And um, why, why it's so important for cooking? Well, there's, you don't taste any additives like fluoride or chlorine or anything in the water because it's all it's nothing, nothing in there. It just tastes pure water. And um, because there's structure to the water, I believe it is it more absorb, absorbs the ingredients that you cook with better. So there's like a better give and take. So... Yeah, yeah like, I know. I know in Japan, like there's a whole boom of like pie water or whatever you call. But, uh, but yeah, it's something that I think a lot of people, in myself included, don't even think about much. I try to use like purified water when I make it when I make ramen, but I don't know what I'm doing. Like yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I know it will taste better than if I used the water from just the sink. But that's really interesting. I should check that out. But it's expensive, right? Like that machine is pretty expensive. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so I was introduced to this when we opened Dumbo and. I didn't even know about the this quantum water technology until it turns out Dumbo really uh, pride, pride, prided themselves in uh, using this really, really nice technology. And um, I used to go to a spring here in Vancouver because I was really obsessed with the delicious spring water there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has that kind of same feeling because spring water passes through multiple layers of um, rock. Yeah. Archegian spring water. So there's structure to that water as well, like on a molecular scale. It's really fascinating. And um, so I believe there's the same thing going on with uh, when you structure the water through the filter. It does the same thing, pretty much makes spring water. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Super fascinating. fascinating. So I guess to make good soup, you gotta start with the good water. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> like the, the most obvious thing, but also the most least, the least obvious thing. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, oh, cause really at the end of the day, soup is like bones and water, right? Yeah. Bones and water and a little bit of other things, but water is like the main, main ingredient yeah. basically. And why? Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Tell everybody where they can find you online and uh, your restaurant and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, Yofara, we're here in Vancouver, uh, the Kitsilano area. Um, our Instagram name is Yofara, one word. And uh, yeah, you can find our website, yofara.com. I'm there every day to say hi, you know, I'll hook you up, <laughs> some gyozas, you know. And um, yeah, I love the uh, community you have here. So shout out to everyone that's listening. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm just really, I was really happy to be here. This, this was a great conversation. I love talking ramen. And yeah, we'll probably just continue talking. Uh, yeah, right now. <laughs> <Just keep going. laughs> yeah, <man. Keep> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks yeah. so much. I'm going to cl close the recording here and we can keep talking Excellent. for a little bit. I got to get going to a meeting, but we'll keep uh -huh. talking for a little bit. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Alex for coming on the show. If you are in the BC area, please go check out Gyopara. I'll link up the website in the show notes. And you can also follow his Instagram account at Gyopara. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Way of Ramen. Let me know what you guys think of the show or who you'd like to see on. Just tell me whatever you want to tell me. If you like this podcast, you can support it by becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash Way of Ramen. Thank you guys all so much for listening and I'll see you all in the next episode. Peace.